I'm going to talk tonight, picking up from the theme that Jack talked about with that beautiful metaphor of the statue, of the clay-covered statue. That's true nature inside was golden. And reminding us that this is our nature, this golden nature. But I'll ask the question for tonight, and work with the question tonight, what is the clay? What is the nature of the clay that covers up or obscures our golden, shining, luminous nature? And so there's many ways to talk about that. There's many ways to think about how our nature gets obscured and how we get lost. And when we come on retreat, what we come in contact with is a lot of clay, a lot of dirt, a lot of muck. You know, we're seeing all our stuff, all our fear and agitation and worry and obsessive thoughts and boredom and hating things. And, you know, this is the clay that when that it's 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 actually part of who we are, too. It's not something like something's wrong with us because we're feeling these things. But it's, it sometimes takes us, it, it, we forget. We forget who we really are. So classically, in the Buddhist teachings, it's talked about as um, hindrances, which are often called, um, or often referred to as difficult energies. And I'd like to tonight call them obscurations. That which covers up our peace and our ease and our joy. It kind of gets in the way. It obscures things. So we'll look tonight at these obscurations. And the reason that we're looking at them, one, is because you're dealing with them all day, and it might be helpful to have a map or a way of understanding them. And the more that we can understand them, the more that we can see them more clearly. And as we see them clearly, we can let go. And we can have more freedom. We can work with them. We'll have ways, tools, techniques for working with them. Now, as an illustration, I brought with me this this, um, chapter of a book. The book is called Holy Cow, an Indian Adventure. And it's by an Australian writer named Sarah MacDonald. And it's the story of a woman who goes to India, and she's living there. Her boyfriend is over there for some reason, and she's sort of a little lost, doesn't quite know what to do with herself. But one of the chapters of the book is she sets a 10-day retreat. And um, the chapter is entitled, Insane in the Membrane. And um, so this is, I'm going to illustrate some of the points that you may be experiencing with her experiences as well. She starts off by telling us that she, she was looking for inner peace. She was, as I said, a little lost, and she was looking for inner peace. And she said, I decide to start my quest for inner peace with a brain enema. On the train, and she's going up to the uh, um, Dharamsala, and this is actually, for those of you who know, it's a Goenka retreat that she does. On the train, I had nightmares of the horrors of being alone inside my own head. I saw my mouth bursting with forbidden words, and my body gripped in a straitjacket surrounded by white coats. My friends' laughs and warnings echoed in my head. Few think I'll make it, and one even offered me a case of beer for every day I survived. So this is Sarah having, she ends up having a somewhat difficult retreat, but also um, she learned a lot. So the first hindrance, the hindrances are the hindrance of sense desire, wanting or craving, the hindrance of aversion, the hindrance of restlessness and sleepiness, and also, and final one is doubt. And again, I... I probably shouldn't refer to them so much as hindrances because then it seems like they're a problem. They're actually not a problem. They come up. We can work with them. They're part of our experience. We can be mindful of anything. We can be mindful of our fear. We can be mindful of our worries. We can be mindful of the things that we're hating or the feeling of hating. So it's a difficult energy that arises. Sense desire is when we start to feel craving for desires of the senses. In the Buddhist texts, it's talked about, um, they use a lot of water metaphors. So there's a, there, if you imagine a, a lake, 
there's dye in the lake. So the lake is all covered. It, it's colored and it's quite beautiful, but you can't see clearly into the body of water. It's, there's, it's, um, it's covered up. It's like, it's like a little bit illusory quality. So with, the, so with craving or sense desire, we're wanting something that's a, a pleasure of the senses. So you're wanting something that you can see or hear or smell or taste or touch or imagine. And it's any kind of wanting for something that's pleasant. It's something that it's, it can be in the future, it can be in the past, or it can be in the present. So you're sitting here and you're thinking, oh, I wonder what's happening for what we're going to have for lunch. And you start imagining and thinking about all the possibilities. Or you find yourself suddenly completely infatuated and desiring another person on the retreat. Or you're remembering something that happened uh, last week that was really wonderful and juicy and made you happy and excited. Or you're right here in this moment wishing for something else, something better wanting this this other this other thing this pleasantness that you're imbuing with your happiness in a sense and sometimes it doesn't we will experience it a lot because we're here on retreat and we're removed from all our distractions and we start our mind starts to crave it starts to want things that make us happy but sometimes the wanting is a lot more subtle and especially for those of you who've been practicing a long time, you'll notice craving arise, but it may not be so gross as, gross as in not subtle, as um, wanting some, um, dying for some chocolate, although it may, that may be the case. But um, it might be something more subtle like, oh, the memory of a really good sitting on your last retreat and you're desiring that. Or just this sense that there's something a little bit better around the corner and there's a, there's a wanting, a wanting quality. Wanting things to be slightly different than they are. So the mind takes us, our minds take us out of the present moment, out of our mindfulness, out of trying to be with our breath, with our bodies, with our whole experience, and puts us into this imagined future that usually doesn't pan out when we actually experience it. And I have this cartoon here from... It's a couple at a travel agency, and they're looking at all these pamphlets, and the man is saying, it all looks so wonderful, I can't wait to be disappointed. (laughs) So sometimes you... I mean, we know this about the things that we desire. We desire the perfect job or the perfect person, the perfect relationship, whatever it is, and it doesn't always end up being what we want. And sometimes, you know, it's pretty good, but there's always, there's always a way our minds can tend to get a little, oh, this is it? Or what's next? What's, what's more exciting around the corner? And we're experiencing this. This, this whole meditation is a microcosm for what we experience out in the world. So what you learn about yourself here is what is is the way your mind and heart and body operates when you're not here. And that's what's so interesting about meditation as we see, oh, my mind is always wanting such and such. Well, that's interesting. I didn't realize so much that so well about myself. Sometimes we want something and we get it and then we're kind of disappointed. I remember um, years ago on a retreat, I was, I was working in the kitchen, and I looked in the kitchen, and I saw the menus for what was coming up the next couple of days. And I saw that pizza was coming on Friday, and it was about Tuesday. So what do you think I did for the next three days? I thought about the pizza. You know, on retreat, as you're experiencing, there's not that many exciting things to think about. Pizza is very exciting. And so I spent a couple of days just thinking, oh, I wonder what kind. And this was at, um, this was at a time when Insight Meditation Society was making its own pizza, and it was just amazing. And um, so I was fantasizing and thinking about the pizza and wondering. And so for three days, I don't believe I stayed with a single breath, but I did. Um, I had very good concentration on the pizza. And finally, the day arrived. It was Friday, and I was very careful to get in line. So I would be not first in line, because I didn't want to look like I was too greedy, but about third, 
So I got third in line and I waited and I got the pizza and it was this beautiful pizza and just what I wanted. And I went outside and found this lovely meadow to sit down and I sat there and I started to eat the pizza and it was pizza. You know, it was bread and cheese and tomato sauce. and It, it was good. It was, it was lovely. It was nice. But it was just, it was pizza. But what, what I saw in that moment was the incredible way that my mind has created this huge fantasy about how this object is going to provide lasting happiness for me. It's going to make me happy and I'm never going to suffer again. Like That's really the story. And how often I do that out in my life. If I could just have the perfect career, then I'd be happy or whatever it is. So it was this really interesting insight and it allowed me to not to notice the craving much more much more closely afterwards like notice each time my mind would desire something oh there's craving arising the wanting that we think the pleasantness is in the object but actually the pleasantness is in our mind or the belief that is in our mind. There's a pleasant feeling. It's an automatic response when we imagine or see something that we like or that's, that we assume to be pleasant. We feel it in our hearts, our bodies. We kind of want it. There's a clutching sense. And we think it's in the object itself. It's not. It's in our mind. Nothing is going to give us lasting happiness. That's one of these teachings that we offer to you because it's not about things. It's not about experiences. It's not about people. It's all about our relationship to what we experience. It's about being, finding contentment with things as they are. This is the practice. So some people may be experiencing the hindrance of craving and thinking or wanting or being lost in fantasies and memories and desires and thinking, what's the problem? I had a great meditation. It was, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes went like that. But you're not really meditating. You're fantasizing or imagining or remembering. So it's really, it's really, it takes us out of what we're working on here. Now you can notice you can notice that you're lost in craving. You can notice that your mind is lost. And this is the power of mindfulness. So we're doing this practice of being mindful, of coming back again and again to the breath. We start with the breath. Because the breath helps us to focus and calm and concentrate our minds. It's always present for most of us, most of the time. So we keep coming back we notice we're lost in thought, like a fantasy, a story, whatever it is. Then we just know, oh, thinking, fantasizing, remembering. And then come right back into the present moment. Or if you're in the middle of the craving, you're remembering this really incredible experience, you can just notice that you're wanting. Notice that you're caught. You can, you can use a label. You can say, oh, sense desire or fantasy or remembering, anything that reminds you where you are right now. It's also really useful to feel your body when you're having all these thoughts. So when your, thought, your mind starts going off, and just notice what you're feeling. With every one of these hindrances, if we can redirect our mind out of the thinking and the obsessive thoughts and the, the, when it's worry or hating or whatever it is, and come back to the feeling in our body, that takes us into the present moment. It's extremely useful practice. If we're really lost in a lot of thought, a lot of pleasant thought, or wanting something, it can be useful to reflect on our motivation. Why are we here? Why did we come to retreat? Did we come to imagine pizza in and out day by day? No. We came to learn about our hearts and minds and to get clear, to have insight, to wake up, to touch into that illuminated mind that we're referring to. So then sometimes when we really go, oh yeah, that's why I'm here, we can drop it and just come back to the present moment. This is um, Ryo Khan, the Zen poet. Um, I forget which century, but anyway. Without desire, everything is sufficient. 
With desire, myriad things are impoverished. Without, plain vegetables can soothe hunger. A patched robe is enough to cover this bent old body. Alone, I hike with a deer. Cheerfully, I sing with village children. The stream under the cliff cleanses my ears. The pine on the mountaintop fills my heart. When our minds are free from this clinging, from this sense desire, there's a contentment with things as they are. Just like Rio Khan was pointing to, there's a relaxing in to things. The Buddha has said many times throughout all of his teachings, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as me or mine. When we cling, we suffer. We want something, we need it, we feel, we create a sense of self and identity around a thing, a wanting. When we can just relax, then there's contentment, then there's being here with things as they are. Then there's a sense of that hindrance sort of dissolving. It's just, oh, okay, I'm just sitting here, it's just the breath. So the second hindrance is the hindrance of aversion. And aversion is the opposite, as you can imagine, of the clinging of the sense desire, the wanting. And the water analogy that's used is water that's boiling. So when, the, when water is really turbulent and boiling, we can't see through to the bottom, we can't see clearly. That's what a mind with aversion is like. So we hate everything. And you may have had that experience sitting here today. You're hating everything. Oh, it's painful. My knees hurt. This is horrible. Why am I in a room with all those people? Ask. Ah, you know, this is a version when our minds stop, when our minds start having um, either hating, but it can also be, it can be more subtle than just hating. It could be fear. It could be sadness. It could be grief. It could be any version of not liking or pushing away. And it can also, again, be past, present, or future. You can be hating something that's here on this retreat. You can be remembering something that you hate or that, you're, that scared you or upset you. You can be imagining something that's coming up in your life. So here's Sarah's experience with um, aversion. Today I realized that my brain is beyond mad. It's now sprouting huge... Oh, no, that's not her. Excuse me, here we go. Today, I'm feeling very dizzy and faint. My knees are killing me. I have a horrific headache from coffee withdrawal. My bowels are also missing caffeine, and it seems that I'm not the only one. Everyone is scoffing tablespoons of laxatives. How are we meant to cleanse our brain when our bodies are as clogged as India's toilets? I'm also suffering sensory deprivation and feeling exhausted beyond all tiredness. And I realize now why there's a vow not to kill. <laughs> there's, there's a mad Indian down the hill who's been yelling some political slogan through a distorted loudspeaker for four hours. I'm meant to be cultivating tolerance and infinite compassion, and all I can think about is how I'd like to murder him. So we can have this sort of outright aversion, aversion towards other people, the food, whatever it is. Or it might be, again, more subtle. And it's so interesting if you can see the aversion on the subtle level, like this sense that things aren't quite right. Or there's just this little... If you, you may notice that your mind... For those of you who've been practicing for some time, you may notice that your mind feels pretty connected and at ease, and yet there's this little thing in the back of your mind that feels like, oh, I just don't quite like this. And it's as if, if we can just recognize this, sometimes that, just seeing the aversion itself, can help us to let go. That's how we can wake up. We, can, we, we notice when we're caught in these hindrances, in these difficult energies. Sometimes there's layers of aversion. I hate this, and I hate that I hate this, and I hate that I hate that I hate this, and it can just go on and on. 
Many of us have talked about experiencing a lot of pain as we're meditating. And for some of us, it's um, chronic pain. For others, it's just the pain of coming to a meditation retreat. And you're sitting in a posture that you're not really used to. So there's pain. And this is not unusual. This is not, there's nothing wrong if you're experiencing pain. It's actually really, really normal for coming on to retreat. So the trick with pain is, first of all, not personalize it, not like think you did something wrong or your body or something's wrong with your body. Our tendency is to make up stories that we start to think, oh, there's a knee pain. I wonder what's wrong. Am I cutting off my circulation? Oh, this is pretty bad. It's going to go on for weeks. And, you know, these stories that we create. Rather than getting lost in the story and the worry and the concern and the layers of aversion, can we just be with the knee pain? Okay, it's pain. What does knee pain feel like? Well, if you investigate it, and all I mean by investigate is bring your attention to it in the same way you're bringing your attention to your breath, and notice what you feel. Feel feel what you feel. So there might be some burning, or there might be some stabbing, and it might move, it might shrink, it might increase, it might decrease. It's an incredibly interesting thing to pay attention to. You might notice, you might notice actually there's a separation between the knee pain itself and what you're feeling about the knee pain. So you might be feeling the sensations of knee pain, and there may be a part of you going, oh, okay, I can be with this, this is okay. Or you might be feeling the sensations of knee pain and a party might going, this is horrible, I have to get out of here, I have to move, what do I do? So there's, there's the direct experience of something and then our relationship to it. So you can work with the knee pain or the whatever pain or body pain that you're experiencing, but be really gentle. You can always take breaks. You can come back to your breathing. You can move if you need to move. Just move mindfully. The point isn't to be macho and to prove that you can sit through knee pain or any pain. The point is to learn from the pain. What, is, what can you learn? Oh, this is my reaction to pain. This is what I do. Oh, I do this out in the world. Wow, whenever I'm really uncomfortable, I move immediately. Well, that's interesting. Again... This practice is a microcosm. What we learn here transfers absolutely outside of this retreat. And that's why we call it, or one of the reasons we call it, insight meditation. So if we're having some uncomfortable experience, emotional pain, physical pain, whatever it is, and then we're having these layers of aversion. We can become aware of the, of the aversion and notice and note aversion. Hating, hating, really hating, hating even more. Just being with the aversion. And sometimes just in the act of being with it, our mind relaxes. It lets go. Feeling the aversion in our body. What does it feel like? Is it a burning in your chest or something in your belly? Can you, can you actually connect with the direct experience in your body? This, again, is very helpful when you're hating something or having a difficult, aversive time. And sometimes bringing in the loving-kindness practice can be very helpful, just a little bit, when you're really lost in aversion, reminding yourself, May I be happy, may I be healthy and free from suffering. A little bit of compassion for yourself can go a long way in this practice. Now, aversion also manifests, and aversion actually at this point ties in with another hindrance, the hindrance of doubt. And together they create self-hatred, aversion directed at ourselves. And this is such a common experience that people have when they come to retreat. It's as though we sit down and we're suddenly quiet and all the mean voices that have ever said anything horrible to ourselves, they just come and 
haunt us and they sit there get to work you're so lazy what are you doing that person's so much better than me and she's sitting so much taller and I'm horrible and it, it just it's a, it's quite extraordinary and pretty painful you know we live in a culture that teaches us we're not good enough and many of our families taught us similar things and so we've internalized these messages and we try to and just if if anybody was as mean to us as we are to ourselves we wouldn't let them get away with it but we let ourselves do it and this is something that um, meditation can be incredibly helpful for working with self-hatred and quite healing and I'll explain in a minute but first I want to read you uh, Sarah's self-hatred I've heard that the Dalai Lama warned that too many Westerners come out of meditation retreats thinking they are the Buddha (laughs) my self-image is not that good I think I'm Sally Field and Sybil with a major <laughs> with a major multiple personality disorder. Conducting my own psychotherapy, I half hope for repressed childhood memories. All I come up with are ABBA and KISS songs. That's something to be very immersive about, right? Um, so so we can sometimes feel like we're swimming in this in this morass of of um, voices that tell us things that make us unhappy. And we can work with this in, in really in two ways that connect so deeply together. And the first is really with the mindfulness of, of, of this hindrance, of this difficult energy of aversion that's directed at ourselves. And that's by being really vigilant with, oh, self-hatred is arising or whatever you want to call it a voice that's mean or something we can actually label it so we begin to do a process of what's called disidentification where we stop taking these voices so personally we stop feeling like they're me but they're just a voice that's arising that's dependent upon conditions that comes from past conditioning and habit and so forth and so we just, oh, there's a voice arising. Just like the voice that says, I'm a terrible meditator. It's just like another voice. It's, it's, it's a thought, a thought that says, for instance, the sky is blue. It's just a thought. So I have a story about this that, um, that sort of had an addendum to it. It's a story I, I like to tell um, and I'll tell you the story, but let me, it's embedded in another story, which is that I was, um, about, gosh, six, eight months ago, I was invited, I do a lot of work with teenagers with the Dharma, and I was invited by a clinic that was working with young girls, teenagers, with eating disorders, and I was invited to do a, two sessions of mindfulness. And so the first session I met with them, and we, we basically did... Um, I taught them basic meditation and a little bit of loving-kindness practice. And then the second session, I came back, and um, I was thinking about what I was going to do, and I only had an hour to work with this group of girls, and there were about 20 or 30 of them, all between the ages of 13 and 18. And so I was thinking and thinking, what do I want to do? If there was one thing I could convey, what would it be? And the thing that came to me was, I want to convey to them that you are not your thoughts. We are not our thoughts. Thoughts are things that come and go. They're phenomenon that arise in this body and mind complex. But it's kind of advanced, you know. And so I wasn't sure they were going to get it, you know, they're 13-year-old. But I thought I'd give it a try anyway. What did I have to lose? So what I did was I talked a little bit about it, and then I told him this story, this story that I was talking about, which is a friend of mine was meditating at a meditation center, and she was having all sorts of self-hatred kinds of voices coming up. She was feeling like she was a terrible meditator, that nobody liked her, all these things. And um, there were all these chipmunks outside, And one day, she bent down to look at the chipmunk, and it kind of came up close to her, and then it ran away. And then this voice in her head said, 
I'm such a terrible person. <laughs> Even the chipmunks hate me. <laughs> and um, so she felt so bad. She was then going to meet with her teacher. So she went in and met with her teacher. He said, how's it going? And she said, horrible. I'm such a terrible person. Even the chipmunks hate me. And he said, even the chipmunks hate me. The sky is blue. Right? She got it. You know, it's just, it's, it's a thought. It's arising in her mind. So, back to the clinic. I tell this story, dead silence. And I sit there and I'm thinking, oh no, I really, really overestimated this. And they're just, they're all looking at me. And one girl goes, I don't get it. And another girl says, I don't get it. And, and so I kind of said, well, does anybody get it? And this one young girl, probably 14 or so, says, I get it. And I said, oh, great, could you explain it for everybody else? <laughs> and, um, and she said, well, some thoughts have an emotional charge and some th- thoughts don't. And if we can try to see other th- thoughts that are really strongly difficult thoughts as ones that don't have an emotional charge, then we'll be happy. And I looked at her and I said, do you want to teach meditation? (laughs) So, we are not our thoughts. We are not our thoughts. We are not the wanting, we are not the clinging, the, the hating, these thoughts that arise in this way. These are things that come through us, phenomenon, arising and passing. And we see this as we practice. So we do this dual practice of the first part is the being vigilant and not identifying so much with the self-hating. The second piece is this loving-kindness practice or any version of kindness that works for you. You know, you don't have to. Some people don't really, really respond so well to the metta, and that's fine. You're planting seeds, and who knows what will happen over time. But just bringing this affectionate awareness, this this level of kindness to ourselves, is working as an antidote directly against the self-hating. It's quite amazing. The more we practice this, the more we practice the mindfulness with a kind of kindness And the more we do these loving-kindness practices and compassion practices and so forth for ourselves, the more we see transformation and we begin to then chip away at the clay and see this golden statue that's really ourselves inside. This is a poem from, or a prayer from the Ojibwe, the Canadian First Nations people. It says, Sometimes I go about pitying myself, and all the time I'm being carried on great winds across the sky. Can we remember that? Sometimes I go about pitying myself, but all the time I'm being carried on great winds across the sky. We forget. So the third difficult energy, the third obscuration, is one that many of us experience on retreat in the first couple of days, sleepiness. You know, it's so completely normal. If you're sleeping, don't worry about it. I mean, we, Jack said last night, we live these really, really busy lives, and we show up here and we're tired. It's fine. I just sat at a retreat and... I let myself sleep and nap for the first couple of days, and then I was fine. I was awake. Now, if you're experiencing it a lot, you, it's also it's something that you can work with as well, because sometimes it, it's not just a regular sleepiness of having um, having had a busy life. Sometimes it's a little bit more like you're getting you're starting to get concentrated but you don't have a lot of energy in your body. And so then you might, your mind might get a little bit of sleepiness and you might start that bobbing, that sinking quality. And at that point, we need to bring a bit of energy to our practice. 
So helping yourself to wake up in whatever way is really helpful. Um, Standing up is good, rubbing your eyes, opening your eyes, anything that brings some energy. You can go out afterwards. If you're finding yourself really sleepy consistently, go out and take, do some walking. Do a fast, a brisk walking outside. Let yourself really um, just bring energy and interest to, the, to your practice. Here's what Sarah said. She said... Why am I wasting 10 days of my life learning to sleep sitting up? (laughs) At one stage, I begin to doze and jerk awake so suddenly that I bang my head against the wall. I crack up as quietly as I can. I'm actually dying for a good laugh. This meditation stuff is intensely serious, and most of us look very depressed. So the sleepiness can be kind of a general tiredness. It can, be, it can be a lack of energy in your meditation. And sometimes it can even be, well, what you might see as a defense mechanism. It may be something that's really hard or difficult that you don't want to feel. And that the sleepiness then becomes a way to not feel it. And that's fine. We have these defense mechanisms because we're, not, we're protecting ourselves, really. And so if that's happening, and if you notice that you're consistently sleepy over a number of days, and maybe you have some really difficult things going on in your life, you might ask yourself in the midst of it, is there something going on that I don't want to feel? And it's just like you drop the question into your body, into your heart, and notice what happens. You might get an answer, you might not. Sleepiness is just, it's, it's just part of this practice. And we go through phases of sleepiness as it's, it's a natural sleepiness, sloth, sluggishness. Sometimes when you've been practicing a long time or even weeks, you'll have the experience of our mind just feeling a little slow and you're trying to notice your breath, but it just can't quite meet it. It's just a slowness, a sluggishness. You just notice it. Ah, oh, there's sloth, there's torpor, sleepiness. So sleepiness, I forgot to say, the water is the water um, analogy is when it's a pond is covered with algae. So it's like can't quite, you know, it's all mucky. That's what the sleep that's what sleepiness is like, or sloth and torpor. The opposite is restlessness or worry, restlessness and worry. And it's um, when a pond is windswept. So you imagine a pond and there's all this wind on it, and again it's agitated. You can't quite see through clearly. So restlessness. Has anyone had that experience today of being restless? It can be the gross form of restlessness where you want to run screaming from the hall. It can be the sense that your mind is racing a thousand miles an hour. It can be a sense of um, it just, it just agitation. Your body feels uncomfortable. Your mind, your, it's, it's really common. In fact, many people find themselves swinging between, between sloth and torpor, restlessness, sloth and torpor, restlessness. And we tend to call these multiple hindrance attacks. Lots are going on, right? You might be hating and wanting and sleeping and, you know, the whole thing at the same time. So, okay, Sarah said, um, Today I realized my brain is beyond mad. It's now sprouting huge paragraphs from novels I've never read using language I don't even understand. Unfortunately, it doesn't last and I come out of the meditations as moronic as I go in. I feel like I'm on drugs, but there's no one to bring me back to earth or share the experience with. My brain is so desperate for friends it started talking to itself, taking on male and female characters with strong accents and weird attitudes. I feel like I'm trapped in a TV episode of Survivor Buddhists. <laughs> the last one, the last one left gets enlightenment. <laughs> so our minds, clearly, lots of restlessness, lots of wandering and crazy, that, that sense of monkey mind, we often call it. 
And it's and it's, so it can be on this this um, gross level or on a more subtle level when you've been practicing some time, your mind not quite meeting the object, sort of you're trying to get to your breath and it just doesn't quite go there. Or thoughts feel so fast that there's just no way you can possibly notice what's happening or or be mindful. It just seems like it's faster than your the ability of your mindfulness. And then often restlessness is accompanied by aversion. So we hate it, restlessness. And also sleepiness, it's uncomfortable, it's awful, I don't like this. And sometimes there's guilt, and sometimes there's worrying and obsession, and uh, there's just... (laughs) I know this one really well. (laughs) And I've worked with it. I've worked with it. And what I've learned is um, that one can have mindfulness in the midst of restlessness. That one can, you can be restless and just know that you're restless. And I had a very seminal moment around this years ago when I was meditating and I was finding myself filled with lots and lots of energy and I just couldn't sleep and I was so restless and I would come into the hall and I could barely sit still so it was, it was getting late at night so I ran out of the hall and I started running laps around the meditation center. But it didn't get rid of my energy. <laughs> So I tried doing some intensive yoga, and then that didn't do anything. And then I thought I'd take a walk in the woods. And by then it was about 2 a.m., and I walked out into the woods. And this was in Massachusetts. And I thought I saw a mountain lion, which is ridiculous. There. <laughs> but I got scared, and I um, so I ran back in. And, and anyway, I just sort of was completely agitated. And finally, the next morning, I went to see my teacher, and I said, I'm... I just have so much energy. I'm so restless. I, I tried running. I tried yoga. I tried um, walking in the woods, and nothing worked. And my teacher looked at me, and he said, well, did you try sitting with it? <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> so this is the practice. Can we be with the restlessness? Can we be with any of these difficult energies, these obscurations? Because when we can, we find out that they're just restlessness. It's actually not that big of a deal. It's just restlessness. It's uncomfortable. It can be painful. But it's all these stories that we layer on top of it that make it even more of a problem. If we can find just the bare attention, what does it feel like in our body? Oh, pins and needles or something, jumping, whatever it is, we can just notice it, come into our bodies, feel it, be with it. Sometimes it helps to get really wide open and spacious when we're feeling a lot of restlessness. So we did some hearing meditation today, and when we, when we do that, our minds kind of have this boundless sense, they open wide, and then... The restlessness is within that. So it's as though we give, you know, it's talked about as a cow being in a very large pasture. It can do whatever it wants to do, and our minds are big enough to contain it. Sometimes, conversely, it, works, it might work to really try to get more detailed and precise. So if you're feeling very restless, or to notice, to, to notice your breath with more and more clarity and precision, that can really help. If you're a worrier, reminding yourself that it's okay not to worry right now, or you can give yourself a set amount of time. For some people this works. You have 10 minutes, worry, but after that, no more worry. And see if that works. Sometimes our minds kind of are obedient. Okay, I won't worry anymore. I, not always. I had um, a big insight into worry when I realized that there was something in the worry itself that I thought was helping, was making it better, that if I worried about it, the problem wouldn't happen. Does that make sense? And I realized that that was completely ridiculous, <laughs> that worrying doesn't help stop the worrying that it just makes it worse because we sit there and we worry. And I just, I really, I'm working with the phrase right now. For those of you who are worriers, I'll pass this on. I'm working with the phrase that there's nothing, there's no need ever to worry about anything. The Dalai Lama, he says, 
He says, if I'm worried about something, I try to do something about it. I do something and then I don't worry. If I can't do anything about it, then I don't worry. It's, it's, it's a mental habit that can cause us a lot of suffering, a lot of agitation, restlessness. So can we just work with the practice of what would it be like not to worry? Now, I'm not saying this is easy. I'm just saying, but for now, if you're a worrier, notice your worrying. Just when you see it, oh, there's worry, worry. You can even number it, worry one, worry two, <laughs> worry 27, worry 643, and it's still 10 o'clock in the morning. Whatever it is, you can practice with it. Early on in my practice, I used to have a lot of guilt about um, not working hard enough. So it was guilt and worry and aversion and self. It was all mixed together. And I remember this, that I would get up in the morning and the first thing that would happen, my, I, my alarm, uh, alarm clock would go off, or I would wake up, no alarm clock, and I'd look at the clock, and if it was the 5 o'clock in the morning, I would feel good. And, but occasionally I would oversleep, and the, those days that I would oversleep, my mind would immediately start saying, I can't believe you overslept. That's so bad. You have, you're, you're, um, you're lazy. You need to get to work. This is, I feel guilty. I, so it would start this whole chain of thoughts going through my head that caused a lot of suffering. And this would happen pretty consistently when I would sleep a little bit later. And then one morning, I remember waking up. I looked at the clock. The clock was a bit later than I wished. And a voice in my head said, here it comes. And then about two seconds later, I can't believe you slept. It was so late. <laughs> but at that point, I just started to laugh because I could see how conditioned these patterns of worry and guilt and obsession, and it, so it was. It was very freeing to know that. And I'll tell you, this was you know many many years ago. Years now, it's my mind isn't doing that so much. It's really worked with it. It's quite amazing to see that our through this practice we can transform. We can be less filled with our greed and our worry and obsession and fear, and we can we can be more connected to that Buddha nature, to that true sense of who we are. The last one, the last difficult energy is the, is the obscuration, the hindrance of doubt. And again, this is when we sit here and we think, what am I doing? Am I doing this right? This is very, very common when you're first starting meditation. What am I? Am I doing this right? Breath? Do I stay in the breath? But what if there's pain? Where do I go? What do I? You know, this is when our minds can get tangled up in knots. We might start to doubt this retreat. Why did I come? I should have gone. Um, some I should have gone on a vacation instead. We might doubt these teachers. Who are these people? We might. I mean, you can have m- millions of doubts. And it's just, again, like with all, of these pra- with all of these hindrances, can we be aware? Can we know that we're caught in the midst of doubt? Oh, I'm doubting. It's just doubt. It can feel very, very pernicious, very tight and tangled, and, and we believe doubt. That's the problem with doubt. It feels really true. Like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have come here. You really believe thoughts like that. So if you can notice when those thoughts are arising, then, okay, I'm just caught in doubt. It's not that big of a deal. It's doubt. Recognizing doubt to be doubt, remembering your motivation, remembering why you're here, like that can be very helpful. And knowing that doubt transforms over time. That as we practice, we begin to have more faith in what we're doing. We begin to have more understanding because it is a practice. Like anything else, you practice and learn. You stop having certain kinds of doubts that you have in the very beginning. And it, it, um, our mind starts to feel more confidence. Confidence in ourself. Confidence in the Dharma itself.
So these hindrances, these difficult energies, they're on our cushion and they're in our lives. And what's interesting is as you begin to identify them, you can see them. You can see them as just on an everyday basis. You may find yourself agitated or sleepy or want craving or hating or doubting. And I find it to be tremendously useful just to notice when I'm lost in the midst of one of the hindrances out in my life. Sometimes I like to think about sort of what I'm calling the cultural hindrances. Like how do these hindrances manifest in the world? The, the, the craving, we see it with this tremendous consumerism and materialism and people's disconnection from themselves and thinking that it'll be solved through, through um, getting that next, uh, next material object. We see aversion and war and violence and hatred and the way that it, it's just, it's, you see it at large in the world in the global arena these days. I mean, all of these you see. We see um, the sloth and torpor with the way we anesthetize ourselves through television, through drugs and alcohol, through anything that takes us out of ourselves and sort of puts us, lulls us to sleep. The speediness of our cultures, the restlessness, the constant distraction, the way that people are so, so, you know, so busy all the time, the speed of the culture in which we live. It's this restlessness. I think it's... Gosh, well, they're all big hindrances. And then the doubt, the confusion, the epidemic of self-doubt that exists in this world, in this country particularly. So as we name and recognize, as we see them in ourselves, as we see them out in our lives, as we even begin to identify them out in the world, we notice that transformation can happen. That we can begin to find freedom in the midst of all of these. And so there's kind of a paradox because in some ways we're working, as you meditate, as your mind gets more and more concentrated and calm and aware, the hindrances start to mellow out. Okay? They begin to become, the more concentration we have, we begin to notice, oh, you know, I didn't have too many hindrances today, or I just had at certain sittings of the day, or I had one sitting that felt very free of any hindrances. So there is this sense of progression, of movement with, um, as we practice, as, as we get um, more skilled at our meditation practice. At the same time, if we're in the midst of a hindrance, we can just notice that we're in the midst of a hindrance. There's nothing wrong, there's no problem, it's just sleepiness, it's just worry, it's just being sad, whatever it is. And that is a moment of wakefulness. It's as though in that moment we're touching the clay, we're seeing the clay, but we're seeing the clay so clearly that the golden light is shining through that clay. There's not a separation here. And so we can be in the midst of a horrible um, you know, pain or aversion, whatever, and we can suddenly know it's just pain. So I had the experience, I was meditating on retreat um, in a monastery in, in Burma, this was um, about six, seven years ago, and I was having a really hard time. I found the food to be really awful, and I thought a lot about um, pizza, probably, <laughs> but, but I also, I, I knew that my walking meditation was disconnected when I would be doing, instead of lifting, moving, placing, I would be doing pizza, sushi, bagels, pizza, <laughs> okay, okay, back, lift, move, place, but anyway, um, so, so I had a hard time, it was, it was, there was a lot of noise, there was a lot of, um, a lot of distraction, and one of the things that I had the most difficulty with was the dining hall. So here, when you come to meditate here, you can take your food, you can go sit out, you can have a nice quiet time. Sometimes for some of us it feels like there's too many people and we want a little space and quiet. But, um, but in Burma, 
you're eating with you're eating at these big tables with for me I was sitting with four or five other women and the tables were gigantic and the food is in the center and you're having to be very very mindful as you eat but also mindful of what everybody else is eating so you might have to pass something way to the other side of the table not only are you doing that but there is there are a bunch of the Burmese teachers sitting up on this dais staring at you making sure that you're being mindful so they're staring down and they're looking at you and you're getting these really kind of intense stares but not only that <laughs> there are all these lay people these um, you know these people who come who donated the food and donated the money for the food so they've come to watch you eat <laughs> so you're sitting there eating in these giant tables trying to be mindful nervous about the side of the teachers um, with these people staring at you sometimes photographing you and sometimes um, once or twice even videotaping you and because they're, they're very they're just they're very joyful it's this wonderful thing that we've come to um, that as a western woman I was practicing in their country so they're, they're, it was very exciting for them um, one day I was, I was in the midst of a big multiple hindrance attack. So I was eating. All this was going on. And not only that, but it was fly season. So the flies were dive bombing into the curries. I hated the food. It was all greasy, oily kind of um, oil bowls with some vegetables floating on top of it. And then there was the, it was really hot. There was this woman who was um, fanning us, which I found to be tremendously embarrassing that she was fanning us as we were eating. But then she was taking her fan, trying to get the flies out of the curry, and dipping it into the curry and whipping it off. And, and so, and the curry would go flying, and I was just, I was just sitting there. I hate this. This is so horrible. What am I doing here? You know, doubt and hating, aversion, and um, and I was hungry, but I didn't want to eat. And I mean, it was just every possible hindrance I was in the middle of. And as I was in the midst of this, suddenly I heard this voice popped into my head, and it said, "You know, it doesn't have to be this way." And in that moment, it was like, like it switched, like I changed the channel. And there I was, or I turned down the sound maybe, but there I was in the midst of it, and the exact same things were happening. They were fanning the, the flies, the food, the people, the staring. But I was completely okay. Because I stopped, the, I, I became mindful of the aversion mindful of the doubt, mindful of the fear, and suddenly all I was was simply here, present in the midst of the hating, in the midst of all of it, in the midst of this crazy show, and it was totally fine. It was okay. It was just hating. It was just really, really unpleasant. And then I started to laugh. Then it became immensely funny. Because it's really about how we relate to things. It's not about the experience itself. And that's the key. That's what we're learning here. That's what we're seeing. Oh, in a moment, in a moment our minds can shift. In a moment we can tap into that golden space in the midst, that golden statue underneath the clay and the muck and the dirt, and our mind can be free. And in a moment we can access the joy and the compassion and the ease and the humor and the love that's really our birthright. So that's what we're doing here. And I'll just end with Sarah's final experience upon leaving. So she leaves the retreat. She's had these 10 days of all this difficulty. And um, she gets back, she gets to the bus station. And she says, at the bus stop in the town of Dharamsala, a beggar boy begins to hassle me. I stop, look into his eyes, and then give him the dinner I bought for the train trip. An old Tibetan monk watching starts clapping and laughing. The boy and I join in. An ordinary Indian begging transaction that normally makes me feel depressed and guilty has become a human and humane exchange of laughter and true compassion. Sure, I haven't saved his life, 
but it feels like a greater gift than money handed over out of guilt, anger, and resignation. I definitely feel I've purged something, and I'm ready to be reborn. So let's sit for a minute or two. Sometimes I go about pitying myself, and all the time I'm being carried on great winds across the sky. This talk was given by Diana Winston at Yucca Valley on April 16, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.